You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Thanks, Max, and good morning, everybody. Honour and a privilege to be here and to share today. So good to have Dave back and Pip. Isn't that good? Doesn't it feel right to have these guys back with us? We had a lovely time last week, Dave. It was great, but you were not here, and this feels good that you're here. So all is right with the world. We didn't, we didn't welcome them back. Let's do that. Let's welcome the Hanbury Show. All is right with the world. <laughs> so we come to Psalm 2 um, as we continue this little series on, on the book of Psalms. And Psalm 2 is an especially important psalm for Christians, along with Psalm 69, Psalm 110. It's quoted numerous times in the New Testament. And the first Christians relied very much on this psalm to help them understand Jesus and the gospel. And in fact, Psalm 2 leads us straight to the heart of the Christian gospel. And so this morning, I want to speak from Psalm 2 about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you that in your love for the world, you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into our world to save us. Bless you, Father. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and work in our hearts and lives. You know the work that needs to be done in us. You know the work you want to do through us. Come in this moment. Shape us, mold us. Make us the people you want us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus and the New Testament writers use quite a lot of expressions to speak about Jesus, uh, a dozen or so, Christ, the Son of Man, the Lord, and so forth. One expression the New Testament frequently uses for Jesus is the Son of God. And to understand this and all those other expressions about Jesus, of course, the best thing to do is to dig into the Old Testament to try and get a sense of what the New Testament writers were getting at when they used these particular expressions for, for Jesus. It's easy to get this really wrong. It's easy to see a label and import an idea into the text which isn't really there. For example, um, kind of logical, but some people think that when Jesus spoke of himself as the son of man, he was referring to his humanity. And therefore, when he referred to himself as son of God, well, he was talking about his divinity, son of man, son of God. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it, in a rough and ready kind of a way. The trouble is, neither of those expressions mean that when you study them in the Old Testament, in the context of the Old Testament, at which point we've just brought in ideas out of our own heads. We brought them in and, made, and read them there. The only way to correct that is to find the context for these expressions. And so that's what we're trying to do today. And if you wanted to um, explore this idea of the Son of God, Jesus the Son of God, well, you might go to 2 Samuel 7 where... Um, where Nathan promises a permanent kingdom to David, and then the next place you would go is this psalm, Psalm 2, and that's what we're doing today. So today I'm going to do more than just a word study on the Son of God. I want to speak to you about the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. I've taken that expression from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which begins the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Son of God. So for Mark... 
That will stand as a summary of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. That's where I've taken the expression from. And you know, in that chapter, um, there's the, the moment when a heavenly voice at Jesus' baptism declares, this is my son. You are my son. And then in the end of Mark chapter 15, uh, as Jesus dies on the cross, there's a Roman centurion representing the Roman Empire. And as Jesus dies, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. So you see, Mark's got a theme here. It's the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. But just to kind of show that Mark isn't on the outer edge here, I want to take you to Romans chapter 1. So keeping your finger in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 2, just get across to Romans chapter 1. Now, there are places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers explicitly state what their gospel is. You could go to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is going, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Or you could go to 2 Timothy 2 verse 8 where he says, this is my gospel. Places where the New Testament writers are trying to be explicit about the gospel that they're teaching. And here we are in Romans chapter 1, this great magisterial epistle of Paul to the Rome church at Rome. And he begins like this, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then that gets him into explaining what he means by that. And he goes, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Okay, son, take note. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, he's a a Jew, but also of the line of David, inheriting then the promises of a Davidic king, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's Paul's gospel. And in essence, it is Jesus was declared the son of God in the moment of his resurrection, the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. It's the same theme, just put in a slightly longer way. So back to Psalm 2. Both Mark and Paul are teaching the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. What do they mean by that? Psalm 2 is going to help us. What can we learn then from Psalm 2 about the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God? Let's begin then with the problem that the gospel addresses. Now, the occasion for this psalm is a coronation, the crowning of a king. So see verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the moment that this psalm is about. This psalm may have been written by David, maybe for the coronation of his son Solomon. It's certainly about a coronation. And maybe it's a kind of liturgy for the coronation as well. See verse 7, um, you will rule them with an iron scepter. I'm sorry, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. It's kind of got an immediacy, like it's almost a liturgy, a, an order of service for a coronation. And so what, mean, what that means is that this psalm is about power in the real world. It's about authority structures. It's about nations and nationhood 
So that means it's about borders and alliances and empires and treaties. It's about who commands the army of the nation. It's therefore about war. It's about the threat of war. And all of that means that it is about the way the world is organized and governed. It's about how the resources of the earth are claimed and owned and organized and defended. It's in the real world. And that's why it begins with nations other than Israel. And I take it what the writer has in mind is the nations that surround Israel. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. It seems that the king of Israel has died or perhaps been deposed and another is yet to be crowned and The nations around Israel see this as an opportunity. It's a moment for them to break free. They're subject in some way to Israel. And this is their chance to break the chains and throw off the fetters. This is the moment to rebel against Israel and strike out on their own. And so the nations conspire. The people's plot in verse 1. The kings gather together in verse 2 against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his king who will be anointed on this day. In other words, against Israel's yet to be crowned king and against Israel's God, Yahweh. This is the problem that's addressed here in Psalm 2. It's the problem of rebellion. Let's be sure, though, we keep this in the context of the real world, which is what this psalm is about. The problem here. And the problem of humanity at large is the problem of claiming to rule over the earth without God, even against God. And so to rebel against his authority as sovereign God and against his wise ordering of life in his creation. At this point, if we were to round out the biblical teaching about this rebellion, well, we could add here the the problem of idolatry. When human beings reject the rule of God, well, because we're made to worship, it's not long before we find something else to worship. And no sooner do we turn away from the true God than we begin to worship other things. Man-made things, natural things, created things. We begin to look to them for provision and for security. And shortly after that, we begin a downhill journey away from the true humanness that we were created for and become a kind of tragic caricature of human beings. And we reach the lowest point of this descent away from the people we were made to be at the moment that we die. And in this way, sin and death have come to stain God's created world, God's created order, and to mark each one of us. And all this tracking back to rebellion against God's rule. Well, how does God feel about this rebellion? After all, as we read in the psalm, he is the one enthroned in heaven. These earthly kings, well, they sit on their earthly thrones. What about the one who is enthroned in heaven? And when he hears these kings conspiring and plotting, how do you think that great king God feels? Well, see, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven 
laughs. He scoffs at them. He laughs, he scoffs, he derides them in their ridiculous plans to rebel against him. And then he's angry with them and he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. How does God feel about human beings when we rebel against them? He laughs at us until his anger rises and then he terrorizes us. What's the problem here as Psalm 2 puts it? It's the problem of rebellion against the rule of God. It's the problem of claiming to rule over the earth without God, even against God. That's the problem the gospel addresses. God laughs at our rebellion. And I don't know whether it's just my weird sense of humor, but rebellion is kind of funny a lot of the time. Have you? I had my daughter Becky here. Some of you might have met her last week. She's about 32 now with three little children. But my mind goes back to the day when she was a teenager. And she's trying to, in her best, sassiest teenage way, to convince me of something she wants me to let her do. And the speech has got all the finger pointing and the hip tilting and everything. And it gets to the final climactic end. And the final line is, but dad, I'm 15. And inside my head, I'm going, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh. <laughs> For her, that's the final point. Recognize me, see what I have become. And in my mind, it's reading, you're just a child. You're just a baby and I'm trying not to laugh. Rebellion is a bit like that sometimes, isn't it? It's, it's funny. Once again, I, I don't know if it's, I, I sort of keep an inner log of stupid criminals, um, because criminals can be very smart, but they can also be very stupid. Have you noticed that? And just over Christmas, there was a wonderful story about a young guy who broke into a car somewhere in Norway. He broke into the car, and then it disabled himself. It, the car disabled itself. Then he couldn't get out. He had to ring the police to get him out. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? They were very glad to get the call. They knew this guy, and uh, they, they were glad to be able to help him out on that day. Um, some years ago, I read about a guy in Belgium. He intended to rob a bank. And so he, he, he arrived early. He parked outside the bank before it opened. He was armed, had a balaclava on. He left the car running and then fell asleep. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And he woke up just as he was being arrested. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, his intentions were malevolent, but he was stupid, right? It's so funny. There was a guy once who went into a bank and handed a teller a note. He didn't want to say anything, didn't want to give away his identity. So he'd written on a little bit of paper, give, give me all your money in a brown paper bag. And he pushed it through the, across the desk. And the teller took the piece of paper and wrote on it, I don't have a brown paper bag, and handed it back. <laughs> and the thief just ran away. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. And another beautiful story over Christmas. Just this recent Christmas, a man robbed a bank in a remote town in Norway. It was a tiny little town. He was the only foreigner in town. And he was captured within minutes. 
And then that reminds me of the kind of fantastic story of those two Australians. Do you remember this in Colorado? They went and they went there. They, 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 uh, they were in a tiny little ski town. Um, they went straight from work to rob a bank. <laughs> they forgot to take off their work uniforms. And so along with their accents, Australian accents, they were immediately in the moment identified by the, the bank staff. But they need not have been identified because they had their name tags on. And they were arrested shortly after heading to the local airport, but not before they took that photo and posted it somewhere or other of themselves. Isn't that just amazing? Guys do that. They, those guys went to jail, Australians, for that. It's funny. God finds our rebellion funny, and it is funny. God laughs at us. What can we learn from this? Here's a couple of things. See how this psalm underlines God's sovereignty, his kingship. We see this in the way he responds to this rebellion. Is God threatened by the conspiracy against him and against his king? No, he's not. Not at all. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. The God of Psalm 2, the God of the Bible, is not threatened by the rebellion of human beings against him. He remains sovereign over us and over history. That the rebellion persists is not because he's unable to suppress it, but because he is patiently allowing it to take its course. When Psalm 2 was written, there were descendants of David reigning on the throne of Israel. But when this psalm was placed here at Psalm 2, at the beginning of the book of Psalms, there were not kings reigning over Israel. And instead, God's people were ruled over by foreigners and by Gentiles, and their day-to-day experience told them that the world was under the control of Babylonian or Persian and later Greek and Roman emperors. And so this psalm is a constant reminder that in spite of appearances, God's Israel's God was still in control of the world. And you and I, we are called to the same faith, to know that our God is God and that he rules over the world, and that he directs the course of history. There's an old Yiddish proverb, man plans and God laughs. The God of the Bible does not laugh much, but here in Psalm 2, we hear God laughing. He's laughing at those who think they can set up their own kingdom and exclude God from it. He's laughing because the idea that we can resist our creator, it's absurd. So here's something vital for us to grasp from Psalm 2. God rules. God is in charge. Here's the second thing. The problem which this psalm addresses and which the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, addresses is not the problem of how to get a sinner to heaven. The problem here is the problem of rebellion on earth. The problem here is the presence within God's good creation of rebellious people. The problem here is the affront to God's rule over his creation. The world is being run in a way that rejects God's rule over it. And yet so often the gospel we teach addresses a profoundly different question. I remember as a young guy being trained to be an evangelist, 
And uh, we were taught some diagnostic questions. These are questions you could ask people to try and identify where they were at spiritually. The questions consist, went, went like this. Are you confident that if you died tonight, God would receive you into his heaven? And the second question was, if you died tonight and God was to ask you why he should receive you into his heaven, why would you answer? How would you answer? You can see where those questions are heading, can't you? Of course, it leads to a gospel presentation. Here's how you can be sure. Here's what to say. But can you see also what's being assumed there? These questions assume that the basic problem the gospel addresses is how to get a sinner to heaven. Now, of course, the eternal destiny of each person matters very much. So does forgiveness of sins, finding peace with God through Christ. But the basic problem Psalm 2 identifies and which the Bible addresses is not how to enable people to go to heaven. It's the problem of a world being run in defiance of God. It's the problem of a world in rebellion against the sovereign rule of God. Now, before I move on, I just want to do something that I often do. It's a question I'm going to ask you, just interested to hear what you have to say. If you've heard me ask this before, you will know where I'm headed. Don't, don't Just let everyone wrestle with it. Just hold on to your good answer and let everybody wrestle. It's a simple question, easy question. What's the central idea in the teaching of Jesus? The central idea in the teaching of Jesus. Anybody? Yeah, good, Matt. And now you've kind of, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Bless you. Thank you for that. You got it exactly right. Yeah, his kingship. Kingdom of God, actually. Kingdom of God is the central idea in the teaching of Jesus. At this point, we often get discussion of the love of God, grace of God, peace of God, goodness of God, holiness of God, all wonderful, true, wonderful, central, wonderful, beautiful things. But the central idea in the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. And that leads us into the next section of this psalm. We're talking about the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, and we've seen that the problem the gospel addresses is rebellion against God's rule. And that brings us then, secondly, to the solution the gospel announces. And we're in verses 6 through 9. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, and you will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. What's the solution? The gospel announces. The solution is the crowning of a king. Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God speaking, I and my and my. This is God doing stuff. God at work, and the emphasis then is on this is what the king God does. He enthrones a king, God's sovereign action. Remember, God is enthroned in heaven, and now he sets out to crush this rebellion. How? By installing his king on Mount Zion, on the earth. And then in verse 7, the voice changes 
And this is now, it seems, the voice of the new king. And he declares that he will now proclaim the decree of the Lord. And here it is from the middle of verse 7. Here's the decree. Maybe think of a document with it written on and it's handed to this new king. And there it is in verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Which brings us right to the heart of the title, son of God. God the father declares this new king is His son. The relationship between the king and God is the relationship between a father and a son. And see how the new king, the son of God, has received promises and assurances from his father. The son need only ask the father, and the father will do what? He'll extend his rule to include the nations to the very ends of the earth. He will crush their opposition as if they were clay pots. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And this new king will rule over them with an iron scepter. And now we should imagine, I think, along with a piece of paper with a decree written on it, um, some kind of um, metal rod symbolizing the right to rule. This one made not out of bronze or copper, but out of iron. It's heavy, it's strong. And what this means, the decree and the rod that his rule will be legitimate, and authorized by the heavenly king, and it will be powerful. And so the problem here in Psalm 2 is the rebellion against the rule of God, and the solution is the enthronement of a new king whose rule will be backed by the promises of God and whose kingdom will expand, incorporating all the nations and reaching to the ends of the earth. The moral order of creation has been disturbed And God will reestablish it through the appointment of this great king. I used to go to uh, the high school I went to with North Sydney Boys High, just up here, not so far away. Boys school, 70s. You have to imagine a pretty tough environment there. We were tough young men and teachers were tougher than us. Uh, I remember one day we managed to reduce a music teacher. I have no idea who it was. I feel terrible about it, but... Class of 40 young men managed to reduce this male music teacher to tears till he ran out of the room and left. The next thing we knew was that the discipline master of the school, whose name, believe it or not, his name was Mr. Warning. (laughs) Christopher Warning was his name. Anyway, he arrives and sends us all down to the gymnasium. And we have to stand in order. We all know what's coming. We have to stand in alphabetical order in a line, which puts me at the beginning. B for Buckley, I'm in the beginning of the line. And we're all going to get the cane. Now, just for those who are unfamiliar, the cane is like a meter-long piece of bamboo. You put out your hand or you bend over. This is really what we did here. This is really, truly in living history. And you get whipped with it. So... We put out our hand, 40 of us all in a row. B for Buckley, there I am, whack. I looked at him and went, that hurt. Now, at that moment, there's a sort of tension because 40 teenage boys don't have to be caned by one single adult man. And if we decide this is not going to happen, it won't happen. And so my little quip at that point, not only have we reduced the 
the teacher to tears, now we're challenging the authority of the school. And his reply, you want another one? It was a perfect reply. You know what? I just meekly said, no. (laughs) And then he went and hit all 40 of us, all the way down the line. Now, I don't know what you think about that brutal and corporal punishment and all the rest of it, but I'll tell you what it did. It restored the moral order of things. And we yielded. We let him do it. We submitted. You see, the problem the gospel addresses is a rebellion against God's rule. The solution it announces is the reassertion of God's authority in the crowning of a new king. And so that's why Jesus came announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And why he offered himself as the authoritative center of that kingdom. It's also why the New Testament speaks of Jesus as the son of God. And it's why the New Testament so frequently takes up Psalm 2 to explain what Jesus was all about. I love the way we find it in Revelation 11. Where we read there that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. The kingdom of this world, you know, all these rebellious kings all over the world, that kingdom, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. I just want to underline then that we're not dealing here with some peripheral issue in the scriptures. The question of kingship, of ruling the earth, of royal authority, of rebellion against the rule of God, of a coming king who will take charge of the nations to the ends of the earth. All this lies right at the heart of the biblical story and it is the substance of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Friends, the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, is about authority. The problem it addresses is the fact that humanity has this deep, Seated defiance of God. The solution it offers is the coming of a king. The story it tells of a king whose authority is secured, who is enthroned on the cross and in the resurrection. The hope it offers a world is to yield to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I guess you've heard, as I have many times, people say in their spiritual experience, they came to know Jesus as Savior, but then they had to learn that he was Lord. I guess you've heard that. What that means then, folks, is that they were not told the gospel. They were told something else. That's because the gospel we tell has become an appeal to self-interest. It's become a kind of offer of an afterlife insurance policy. It's the offer of cheap tickets to heaven when we die. And of course, there's enough truth in these offers to be persuasive. And many of us, and I think I was one at the very at the beginning, signed up to the Christian faith on exactly these terms. It seemed like an unbeatable deal. It went something like, stop trying to get to heaven. Well, I wasn't anyway. Receive by faith the gift of eternal life. And that faith is doing nothing. Has to be doing nothing. And you'll go to heaven. Unbeatable deal. And I signed up, and I guess many of you did. 
But can you see the twist that gives to our understanding of the gospel? It gives us a gospel that's narrowed down to each individual sinner, narrowed down to our individual eternal destiny, and it gives us a gospel which has no interest in the world, no interest in the earth, no interest in creation. And why? Because we are each getting ready to fly away to heaven. And that means that it leaves us with a gospel which we find hard to connect with everyday life. But the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, the Jesus who is the king of the kingdom, connects us immediately to the real world. And that's because it addresses the real world problem of our rebellion against God's rule. And it solves that problem by anointing a new king to rule the world, King Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, means what it means in the real world. And it demands a response. And so now we're in verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The gospel addresses itself to those who hold power in the world. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. It's addressed to people in the place where they make their living, where they rule over the earth. It's addressed to people in the place where they organize the way the earth supplies their needs. And the gospel comes as a warning. The kings are told to be wise and be warned. And what are they to do? See in verse 12, kiss the son. And the idea here is probably um, kiss his feet or kiss the ground before his feet. In other words, to yield to his authority, kiss the son lest he be angry. Here is the wisdom the kings are called to. They must recognize that the son has all the power. And that they need to be on the right side of him, lest he destroy them completely. And in this way, they will also be serving the Lord. They must kiss the son in this way, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. The son carries all the authority of God. Yielding to the son is the way God expects us to serve him. God has appointed a new king. And now he demands that people submit to him. What response does the gospel demand? Well, in brief, to kiss the Son, to submit to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since sensitive subject, this one, <clears throat> kissing. It's awkward, isn't it, sometimes, kissing? Uh, full of you feel very vulnerable when you go to kiss someone. Sometimes it works beautifully. It's really pleasant and nice. But um, I have somebody who, in my life, who I love very dearly, but we're not quite on terms to substantiate this. And she always tries to kiss me on the mouth. <sighs> Dear, oh dear, that's so embarrassing. And, 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 and I should remember, I should remember but I, ne I never remember. I just say, oh, it's so lovely to see you. And I come approaching. And it's not till the laser lights go across my face that I realize what she's saying. And it's at the last minute. And so then 
I'm trying to go left or right, trying to get the cheek, you know, and then it always ends up a mess. Like there's vulnerability there in kissing, and I feel very vulnerable at that point. Um, I have a friend who, um, uh, well, she, she went away. She and her husband went away to Europe for quite some time, and I should have thought about this beforehand, but she was into the triple kiss thing. <sighs> yeah, I should have known. You know, I should have thought about this. I went on one cheek, and then I moved across to somebody else, and then I saw she presented the other cheek, but I'd missed the moment, so I did that, and then I tried to come back, and then it, the moment was kind of, it was sort of ruined. And did we, I don't know if we did the third one or not. I was just, it was all very deflating, and now when we see each other, she and I have to have a little chat, like, is it one or three, <laughs> left or right, just, just to get it right. And I, I know I'm more vulnerable about this, because when I was a child, I had an auntie, Eileen, and um, I'm very sure that Edna Everidge uh, was modeled on my RT Eileen. You know, Edna Everidge, the, um, the, uh, that Barry Humphreys woman. We've got a picture of her somewhere. There. Don't we, Andrew, there? I don't Dame Edna Everidge, that's right. Anyway, uh, this auntie of mine always wanted to give you a huge kiss. So embarrassing. She was a woman of sort of Wagnerian proportions, you know, like very well built. Very stick-outy, if you know what I mean. And, um, and, you know, as a little guy, that was sort of a bit overbearing. And, uh, but she always wore several pairs of glasses and lots of beads as well. So that little nestling place was really angular and precarious. And, and so when she draw you in, you felt like you were trapped in this clunky, chunky vice. And once she had you in that place, down she would come with these red rubbery lips. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's all very fresh in my mind. <laughs> kissing is kind of vulnerable, isn't it? And I guess this kissing of the feet, I mean, how could you do that without being vulnerable? You just got to bow down, kiss the feet. I wonder if it surprises you. I wonder if you realize that the declaration of the gospel is an assertion of God's authority. You know, that's why Jesus didn't merely invite people to faith. Have you ever noticed this? Jesus commanded faith. Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. It's not, that's not an invitation to faith. That's a command to faith. That's Jesus acting as king. Kingdom of God is at hand, and this is what you must do. Believe me. Believe me. Stop living the way you've lived up till now. Believing other things, searching after other things. I am the king, do what I say. That, that's what's going on there. When Jesus, remember, sent his disciples out in Matthew 28, he didn't just send them out and say, here's a great idea, let's plant a church. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples. And that's why Paul says to the Athenians, when he's there out in this multicultural mission setting, he's trying to present the gospel. He's just presented the resurrection. And then he says to these great big group of unbelievers, God commands all people everywhere to repent. <laughs> That's not like I just, hey, if I could get your permission just to slide a little word in edgeways. It's, hey, you 
do not believe in Christ, but God commands you to stop living the way you live and believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the King. You see, the gospel is an assertion of God's authority. And when we preach that God raised Jesus from the dead, what we are saying is that there is a new king in the universe and that everyone must bow to him. And do you remember the punchline of Peter's great Pentecostal sermon? This was the moment that struck the people to the heart. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Do you see? He's asserting that Jesus from Nazareth is God's appointed king. And the gospel to the world is here in Psalm 2. And if this gospel is preached truly and biblically, it will always come with this demand. Kiss the son. Bow down and kiss the feet of the son of God. And so today I call you, if you have not already, to yield to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to kiss the Son. You have lived in God's world, but you have lived in rebellion against him. You have lived in the Father's world and you've ignored him. You have depended on this world for, his, for your very life, but you have not given thanks to him. You thought your life was yours to do with it as you will, but your life belongs to God the Father, and he has appointed a king, Jesus, the Son of God, to rule over you. And he calls you today to submit to him. He calls you to bow down and submit to his king. He calls you to kiss the Son. And there we have the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. The problem it addresses, rebellion against the authority of God. The solution it announces, there's a new king in the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. The response it requires, yield to the authority of Jesus, kiss the Son. And I wonder then, has that all been a little bit shocking? All this talk of authority, of power, of kingship, of rebellion and submission. Sounds more like politics, doesn't it, than Christianity? Well, it is because it's about the real world. Christianity is about the real world. Lordship of Christ is about the real world. The Lordship of Christ claims the world, the whole of the world, and the whole of history. Yeah, it's about politics because it's about the real world. But maybe you're thinking, hey, John, I'm more used to the language of love and grace and I prefer to think of the God of love rather than the God of authority. Let me just finish then with the very final verse, verse 12 of this psalm. Very end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son. And what does that remind you of here in the Psalms? Those who here last week, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. These two Psalms belong together. And their book ended with blessing. Psalms 1 and 2 belong together and are tied together by this theme of blessedness. God has always wanted to bless the people of the world. He wants you and he wants me to know the pleasure and satisfaction of living in his world under his wise and gracious rule. And to rebel against his rule 
is as stupid as getting locked in a car you're trying to steal. The whole thing is just a bad idea, a stupid idea. But living in submission to King Jesus, well, that's to find our way back to the place we were made for, to live in God's amazing world under his wise and loving rule. And yeah, this is about love from the beginning to the end, God's love for the world, God's love for the people of the world, God's love for creation, God's love for you. The gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, then is God's loving invitation to know him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to know him, to submit to him, to take refuge in him, and to be blessed in him. Well, the Lord bless him.